Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Jerome Tubiana. Jerome is a writer, researcher, and formerly a senior analyst on Sudan for us at Crisis Group. He's here to help us understand the rise of Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces, which is now caught in the raging battle for Khartoum against Sudan's regular army, and the RSF's leader, General Hameti, whom Jerome first met in 2009 in Darfur and has covered extensively since. Jerome, thanks for joining us. Hi. So obviously we have a horrendous situation in in Khartoum, and the best reports we get now seem to indicate that the paramilitary rapid support forces um, under General Hameti more or less controls much, if not most, of the capital. We have had talks between the army and Hameti's side uh, start in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, um, but the ceasefires have continually broken down since the beginning of the conflict. We'll get to the, the history of Hameti and the RSF in a second. Um, but but first of all, I wanted to start off just based on your conversations with Hemeti and others. What, what do you think Hemeti wants? Well, it's not clear, but um, he certainly wants more power, but he also wants some safety for himself personally, but also for, for his people, his, his force, his economic interest, and of course, his political interest. And of course, um, uh, for Hemeti, as for many uh, players in, in Sudan, the three layers are connected. I mean, it would be very difficult for him to envisage a political future and maintain some economic interest without his force. So especially now, because he's felt threatened and part of the current fighting is actually a response to an accumulation of of threats, not only from the army, but also from politicians within the center from, from, from various backgrounds. But for the moment, it's really uncertain, especially in, in the context where the army is, is actually having quite maximal demands. And such demands like for the RSF to evacuate Khartoum, I mean, it's very difficult, I think, to accept because for them, their presence in Khartoum and their, their control of some strategic areas on Khartoum is, is seen as a, as a key to their own survival. So that is why negotiations in a context of a very strong lack of trust is is very difficult to to ensure. Mm. And what's your understanding of RSF's capabilities and manpower in the fight for Khartoum right now? I mean, what what do people need to understand about how they operate and and do you have any estimates on how many forces he has in the in in the capital? In the capital I don't, but I I think most forces from both sides have been moving to toward the capital. As you know, those deployments took place, especially on the RSF side, before the fighting, over some months. I mean, it even started during Bashir time. The RSF gradually deployed to Khartoum for different reasons. It was also not necessarily a way to prepare to fight, but it was, I think, a way to have more weight in Sudanese politics because the Sudanese politics themselves happened to be overwhelmingly concentrated in the capital. And so if you remain in Darfur for the RSF or any other force, you you won't have much weight. What's happening in Darfur was largely seen with a lot of indifference in the capital. So moving to the capital was was first a way to have influence and then to also threaten those in the center 
that there could be fighting, not necessarily to fight. And then, unfortunately, fighting took place and uh, more forces were deployed to the capital from both sides. So I don't know how many. What we know roughly is that the RSF may be uh, all in all above 100,000 men and the regular army may be more than double than that. So there's clearly no balance and of course the RSF also doesn't have aircraft and, and heavy artillery. This is all the, the monopoly of the regular army. But the RSF strength maybe is its mobility tactics mirroring those of the Darfur rebels from the beginning of the conflict in Darfur in 2003, very mobile with light forces. So this is why actually Bashir gave them that much power to fight the wars in the peripheries because the army looked stuck in, in old infantry artillery tactics with little mobility, which is the reason why they were often often defeated by, by much more mobile rebel forces. So it, it may be a strength, I'm not sure how much it's a strength in, in the urban environment like Khartoum, but somehow it seems it's, it was a strength benefiting for some, for, from some surprise effect to take control of key areas. And of course, there was preparation. The RSF clearly prepared, especially to, to target airports, because they knew that with full air power from the regular army, it would be very difficult for them to survive. And they positioned themselves in, in locations where they are not easy to be dislodged from. Who is supporting Hemeti? And, and where is he drawing his his manpower from. Does he have much support even among his own communities in Darfur? It depends what you consider to be his, his own community. I mean, he tried to get support from all Darfur, including non-Arab communities. And he recruited some, but not that many and not that much at senior positions. Basically, he tried to get support from Darfur and from all Sudanese peripheries initiating for this the, the Juba peace agreement. But after the agreement was signed, rebels came back to, to Khartoum, to Sudan, and they were not ready just to be aligned behind him. They, they went on their own way. They pursued different alliances, and they even divided over those alliances. And then Hemeti got closer to the civilian political parties as well. But that doesn't mean those civilian political parties are today supporting Hemeti in that fighting. It's really a fighting between two forces and nobody outside of those forces really seem to support one of them. People are rather supporting the very idea of ceasefire. Hmm. And if you estimate his forces at 100,000, where would most of those be from? Well, many uh, many are from Darfur uh, and from Darfur Arab communities, but not only uh, because he also had some success in recruiting from other communities in the peripheries, including Blue Nile. But still, you, you may think the core of them is from Darfur Arab communities. High ranks are from his own tribe, I mean the Maharia tribe in Darfur. And then you may have thought other Arab communities were not that happy within the RSF, including for this, this concentration of power within his own tribe, clan or even family, the army actually tried to reach out to those other possibly dissatisfied communities, tried to recruit them, 
and and got some success. I mean, although that process was interrupted by the current fighting, it it was just beginning. But still, after the fighting started, you didn't see even those communities who appeared not that satisfied by the RSF to to defect or to support the army against the RSF. I think today, Darfur, Arab and non-Arab communities, for most of them, they don't want to take part in that fighting. I mean, most people in Darfur, including Arab communities, say, think Darfur already suffered too much. Darfuris have been warning from this fighting for a long time. They warned, including members of the RSF, members of the rebel civilians, warned that the next fight will will be in Khartoum, will take place in Khartoum, and that it will be between the RSF and the army. You could even say between the periphery, between Darfur and the center. But still, they people were even hoping or thinking that fighting should be in the center so that Darfur would be spared. Actually, only the first, if you want, only the first part of that uh, prediction took place. Yes, the fighting concentrated in Khartoum. What people were hoping for, which is Darfur to be spared, did not take place because there was still there was still a lot of fighting in, in Darfur. So let's go back uh, uh, quite a bit and talk about the origins of, e- even before the Rapid Support Forces, the, the origins of the Janjaweed, of Hameti within that. So how did Hameti and, you know, what's currently the Rapid Support Forces, when how did this process in which they started to rival the state itself, where did that begin? So... There's been always a history of Sudan recruiting proxy militias as auxiliaries to the regular armed forces to fight wars in the peripheries, beginning with South Sudan, just because the army was not doing that well. And so they were recruited and chosen by ethnicity. For instance, in South Sudan, and it started before Bashir time, including during Sadiq al-Mahdi's rule, some Southern Sudanese were recruited because they had uh, hostile relations with uh, the Dinka-dominated SPLA, but then also Arabs who used to have conflictual uh, relations with the Dinkas when they were migrating with their cattle from northern Sudan to southern Sudan were also recruited. And so those included Darfur Arabs. So when uh, the war began in Darfur in 2003, quite immediately, came the idea of recruiting Darfur Arabs. First, because the rebels were mostly non-Arabs, but also because some Darfur Arab politicians represented in the Bashir government basically convinced Bashir that it was the best tactic. Well, you have to remember that when the war began in Darfur in 2003, rebels were very few, but they actually had uh, some victories, including a surprise raid on El Fashir airport where uh, the government aircraft was was actually destroyed. And it was a humiliation for the government, for the Bashir government and for the army, so that there was some room for some local politicians to propose uh, their services. And so, though the Arab politicians were successful in getting that done, in getting Bashir to take the decision to enlist massively Arab communities, in particular camel herders from North Darfur into militias, which were nicknamed Janjaweed, but they were quickly integrated into various forces 
including chiefly the border guard. Uh, and that was it. I mean, those people were mostly uneducated. They were easy to recruit. The main aim of recruiting them was actually to make sure that they would not join the rebels. But still, there was some dissatisfaction among them. And so gradually, some of them started to get started to get closer to the rebels. And Hemeti was actually one of them at the beginning. He was part of the border guard, but he was not a very senior person in the border guard. And so for six months, he actually claimed to be a rebel himself with, with others as well. But then if you discuss with the Darfur Arabs, including from Hemeti's own tribe, they will really just tell you that there was no particular reason why, why they could not imagine him, rather than another one, could uh, rise to such a high level within the Bashir regime in, in a, such a quick time. What happened is, uh, after being six months a rebel, six months a rebel, sorry, he came back to the government fold, and then in 2013, uh, while there was actually even more dissatisfaction within uh, the ranks of uh, Darfur Arab militias and communities, he presented himself as the less disloyal and was able to meet Bashir and to get his trust. So he was chosen to head the Rapid Support Forces. It was at that time a relatively small unit, maybe 6,000 men, but it was clearly, it was clearly shaped as a counterweight to the regular army under the intelligence service. And then trust between Bashir and Hemeti grew and it was put directly under the presidency as a Praetorian guard for Bashir against the army and even against the intelligence would they decide to get rid of Bashir. Hemeti had a strong freedom actually to recruit and, and give ranks to whom he wanted within the RSF. And... What is Hemeti himself like? You know, when people talk of General Burhan on the other side, you know, they speak of someone who never necessarily showed much ambition or a, a sort of trajectory to the de facto head of state role he has now. But on Hemeti's side, people often describe him as, you know, someone who is, you know, perhaps had outsized ambition um, from the beginning and, and wore that on his sleeve. So how would you describe him personally? About ambition itself, it's really difficult to know if someone has ambition and, and which ambition. What's, what's sure is Hemeti, when you meet him, if you compare him to the classical Sudanese army officer or, or even militia leader, is quite open and is, is quite easy to discuss with. And of course, he will try to give the best image he can and, uh, and sometimes with success, sometimes... Uh, he can be counterproductive, I would say, as, as everyone. But he, he would be rather open to, to tell you about his past and how he actually made it to the top. So he's much less secretive, if you want, about well, the, the facts from the past uh, than most military leaders in Sudan. did not have the chance to have much education, was educated in the bush and he even explained sometimes that it was also sometimes an asset, or that uh, yes, uh, his uh, his family, uh, his clan, were nomads with roots in Chad. He was certainly frustrated that that was actually used, including in the centrist media, against him. And then discussing about the future is of course more complicated. I mean, certainly 
he would not necessarily tell you his plans. But when I met him, he was also quite honest that he felt under threat and that he, as he, as he mentioned also recently in another interview with, with another uh, uh, observer, that he felt he was in a central position, but certainly also threatened from both his left and his right. And when he said the left, he, he, he meant the civilian political parties. Also, he made some efforts to get closer to them, including at the beginning of the revolution and, and more recently before the current round of fighting. And then he said, also threatened from the right, and certainly from the right he means the former regime, because the former regime, including some army officers, would never forgive him to have actually toppled Bashir, and also would probably never forgive him to being indeed an, an educated militia leader from the peripheries, to have raised to the point that he could actually challenge the, the army hegemony. And how did Hemeti grow to be so wealthy? Um, obviously, I think people, they, they see a, uh, a militia leader turned into, you know, more of a paramilitary than a, a militia leader. But how did, he, how did he become such a businessman at the same time? He started as a businessman, and not a very big businessman, but gradually quite successful businessman. And, and clearly, I think if he and, and others in, among his brothers had an ambition, I think more than a political or military ambition, their initial ambition was, was to, be, to be successful businessmen. Well, remember, they, co- they come from a very poor background of nomadic camel herders. He was first a trader, and not only a camel or livestock trader, but a, tra- a trader trying to do va- various trades. I believe it's not true that he was primarily, as, as has been said recently in the media, that he was primarily a, a camel a thief or wrestler. He, he was, I would say, a regular trader. I met him once in his furniture shop in, in Yella, so more in the regular business. And then he turned to gold. So Hemeti thought that the, the, the territory where his tribe and his militia had settled could be potentially quite wealthy, and it turned out to be true. He was also quite smart in understanding maybe before other Arab militia leaders in Darfur that if you want to to make wealth from gold, you don't necessarily need to fight and, and make a mess and to control of the gold mine, and that a gold mine which lies in a peaceful area makes more money. So that's how he got his wealth, his private wealth from. And then, of course, he played a key role after 2016 when there was war in Yemen and the Saudi led a coalition, an international coalition against the Houthis in Yemen. And both the RSF and the army sent troops, the RSF under Hamidi and the army under Buran. And of course, there were payments for those troops by the Emirates and by the Saudi. Of course, it was also very interesting in political terms because then both Boran and Hemeti could uh, were working together at that time and they could link with uh, Saudi Arabia and with the Emirates and uh, propose themselves as non-Islamist replacements of Bashir. Before we get back closer to the current day, 
You wrote a long, fascinating essay exploring the role of drought and climate change in Darfur, how it affected uh, certain communities like the Zahawa and, you know, some of these Arab nomads um, in terms of displacement and root causes of the conflict that, that later broke out in Darfur. Um, when you think about the sort of trajectory of the RSF, many people sort of point to the gold, as you mentioned, um, as, uh, as a key factor. Do, to, to what degree do you see climate change as, as really a, a key part of the a key part of the equation when it comes to how how these uh, Janjaweed got formed and eventually ended up in a place like Khartoum? Yeah, well, there's certainly the climate and successive droughts. Darfur was very, very much affected, especially in the 1970s and 1980s. And certainly uh, Darfur Arab camel herders, northern Darfur camel herders, were, were very affected. It's one of the reasons why uh, Hamet's clan actually moved south. It's not the only reasons. There were also local political reasons, including local conflicts for the chieftains. And, well, the, one of the causes of the war in Darfur is that people moved from the north to the south. They found themselves on lands belonging to other communities, and there were conflicts for, for the, the, the ownership of those lands. And, and those conflicts predated the Darfur War. There were not only conflicts between Arabs and non-Arabs, but uh, those conflicts between Arabs and non-Arabs in particular were exploited by the central government in a divide-and-rule strategy, and they sided with the Arabs, including giving them weapons even before the war officially began in Darfur, while the non-Arabs actually formed self-defense groups and started to fight not only against the Arabs, but against the government itself. So that's the main way you can relate climate to, to the beginning of the fighting. What is obvious is that the central government actually did not give the right response to the climate crisis. But of course, it's, it's always politics. People just don't kill each other because of climate. Climate is a factor, but then when people start killing their neighbors, it's, of course, politics that is making this possible. And, and the whole lawlessness of Darfur was made possible by the Bishop government. We'll link to uh, your essay in the show notes for listeners, um, and I, I recommend everyone go, go go read it at length. So zooming back closer to present day, after the formation of the RSF in, in 2013, and then after Hemeti becomes leader, and then after the war in Yemen, which, as you said, was a, was a big break for him that allowed him to grow even more. Of course, he played a role of sorts in the ouster of Bashir in 2019, um, Hameti, and then he he came, you know, him and Burhan basically together formed this new, at first, transitional military council, which, you know, later became, um, after the power sharing deal with civilians, the the sovereign council. Um, wh- where did things between Burhan and Hameti start to go wrong? In in, from your view, I suspect from from day one after Bashir was toppled, Hameti clearly wanted to play a, a leading role and uh, was making moves, including establishing uh, relations with, with foreign countries on behalf of Sudan, which were not necessarily agreed by, by Burhan, or Hemeti was not necessarily consulting 
Moran or the army before making moves. So I, I would suspect from, from day one. And it was also a conflict not only between two forces, but also between two very different backgrounds. Maybe there were only two occasions where when when both RSF and the army were, were really in agreement. The first occasion was, was when they decided together to topple the ship, and the second one was when they made the coup, the second coup, against Hamdok and the civilian component of the transitional government in October 21. Hmm. And do you think, you know, are you one of those who say that this was more or less inevitable, that they would eventually come to blows? Or do you look at the sort of months in early 2023 leading up to this conflict for the very specific trigger? It was planned. It was not an unavoidable. I think it could have been avoided, including if some uh, international players had been less blind. But certainly it was predictable and, and predicted by many players. Many observers, including myself, had warned this would happen just because we listened to people on the ground. Any RSF member for three years now, who would have told you they, they forecast this to happen and somehow prepared to it. Some players tried to avoid it and uh, some advice was given to, to international players to try to reconcile Bohan and Henneti and to some extent they tried for it. But even the civilian players in Sudan were actually divided over that issue because some some would say we need to avoid that uh, fighting and so we need to reconcile them. But others would actually would tell, let's not try to reconcile them because if they reconcile, it will just be against the civilian democratic transition that we want. So you had the two, you had two competing advices on, on what to do. And, and eventually not much was done. Certainly some... Uh, Political uh, players in the center thought it could be good actually to try to use one against the other. And that probably fueled actually the tensions. Even some international players, intentionally or not, probably fueled the tensions, trying to use one player against the other to move forward. Mm. Yeah, as you say, that. Um... There, there were many Sudanese who were who were warning some of these civilian elite, you know, just how dangerous and, and, and reckless this sort of budding informal alliance with Hameti could prove. I, when you say the international community made mistakes, what are the main mistakes that you would identify? Obviously, there's a lot of finger pointing going around, um, but many people are actually criticizing different things. So what, what would your criticism be? On the last uh, days... Before the fighting, before the eruption of the fighting, uh, there was some kind of push toward yet another power sharing agreement on the basis of that framework agreement supported by or written or pushed by the UNITEMS, by the UN mission, which was clearly, you just, one just has to read the text, vague, but also not balanced, and with some, even if vague, provisions potentially threatening for many players, and not only for the army, but also potentially threatening for, for some of the Darfur others as well. Some, regardless of the fact that some of them supported the agreement, even so they knew it was not necessarily good for Darfur, and uh, others 
and still were opposing it. So clearly there was no need to rush for that and no need to rush for new portion. The most important was to have more substantial discussions, including not necessarily all players, but including probably more of them that, than those who were actually involved in, in that agreement. So, so going back to the current conflict um, and, the, and the current state of play, I think it's easy for people to foresee where Burhan and the army might get some external backing and supplies to keep up the fight. Do you think Hemeti has clear foreign patrons who would maybe step in and support him if this fighting continues? The, the main potential backer Hemeti could be United Arab Emirates, but there is a difference between backing someone politically and uh, intervening into uh, such conflict. And of course, the Emirates also will have to take into account what some of their allies are, are thinking. Some of their friends, including the United States, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, may also put some pressure on the Emirates not, not to interfere, but also. I think there are many states which were interfering de facto politically or were, were somehow biased or, or having preferences in Sudan before the fighting who hopefully may, may give it a second thought before uh, interfering or intervening in the current situation. And many could have actually interest on both sides or could have actually interest for no fighting because that fighting also they have even direct negative impacts for some neighbors. And how does the Chadian government view all this? And, and what do you think the, the cross-border implications could be of this conflict in Sudan? I mean, the Chadian government has been trying to be neutral in that fighting. And its, it's interest is to be neutral. And the Chadian government is not just seeing things in terms of Hemeti uh, versus Burhan. It, it also has important relations with uh, the groups and and with other states around as well. So their interest is to be neutral. Even so, probably they would always look very cautiously at, at Hemeti, just because he is a person who has tribal and familiar relations within Chad. So you, they have to take that into account. They have to be cautious with him. They, they, they would be more cautious with Hannity than with the Sudanese army because the Sudanese army has no connections within Chad to directly interfere into Chadian politics. And then more generally, Chad and the Chadian successive regimes, I mean, the regime of Debi and now the regime of his son, have been really good at not only managing Sudanese politics and using cross-border tribal relations to, to manage them, like when Hemeti was only a junior leader in Darfur and, and the Chadian, the Debi regime, was using his family within Chad to reach out to him and turn him against the Sudanese government. That was in the years 2005, 6, 7. Still today, they, they are pretty good at benefiting from such relations, and not only for Hemeti, but, but to actually manage the risk of cross-border conflict spreading from Darfur 
through Chad. There were many Sudanese armed groups, especially from Darfur, who got sucked into the conflict in Libya, including the RSF. Do you see the conflict in Sudan having any potential implications in Libya or perhaps groups that are currently in Libya coming back to Sudan? How do, how do you sort of see that nexus? Before the, the fighting erupted, there were negotiations to bring back, in particular, uh, uh, Arab militias who were government militias uh, in Sudan during Bishop time, in particular border guards, and who actually left to Libya uh, as a result from the conflict between uh, Hemeti and his rival Musa Hilal when Hemeti arrested Musa Hilal. Many of them left to Libya. So that is an intra-Arab conflict between two different Arab clans. And so it seems that the army in particular was hoping to get those people who are quite hostile to Hemeti back to Sudan, maybe in order to reform the, the border guard and have another paramilitary force who could act as a counterweight to Hemeti. It doesn't mean they would fight. I mean, Arab communities have already suffered in Darfur from uh, intra-Arab fighting. I think many people, including Arab leaders, even if there are tensions and rivalries between individuals, between tribes, are keen to avoid that again. So now I would think most Arabs would be would rather avoid to to fight against the RSF, which could risk uh, provoking killings even within within families and could be very damaging to the, the social fabric. So that yeah that the the the, the there is not that much risk. I, I would say of uh, there's been a lot of gossip in the media, especially the Libyan media, but uh, Sudanese forces who actually fought in in Libya as proxies, in particular for Haftar, were mostly Arab militias who were actually against Hemeti and Darfur rebels. So in that context, it is not that obvious that Haftar, in spite of the fact that Haftar has support from the Emirates, but also from Egypt, so not only from the Emirates, uh, should take side in Sudan and support uh, the RSF rather than the SAF. I would say his interest is rather to be neutral. And how do you judge the risk of this conflict, which is mostly in Khartoum right now, although has, of course, erupted in a few places in Darfur? How do you perceive the risk of this tipping into something like a fuller reignition of war in Darfur? Darfuri people including within the RSF, we actually like to avoid this. But there are different situations. One, of course, is West Darfur, where there's been, since the revolution, uh, a resumption of, of tensions between Arabs and, and non-Arab, chiefly the Masalit community, because Arabs in West Darfur, including RSF members who do not necessarily follow Hennetti's orders, are very reluctant to see uh, the Masalites getting their land back, the IDPs returning, the Masalites getting more power, maybe getting support from Darfur rebels who signed that peace agreement in Juba. So in West Darfur, uh, there's been eruptions of, of very violent, very deadly clashes uh, almost every six months 
since the revolution. Also, the current fighting and the, the security vacuum it, it provokes means that it is likely to, to aggravate in West Darfur. In, in the rest of Darfur, there's been fighting in towns with uh, civilians quite a lot getting killed in crossfire and the same kind of security vacuum. It doesn't mean that there will be more fighting and the rebels have been smartly positioning themselves as neutral, as mediators potentially, but also as protectors of civilians, ready to fight to protect civilians, not to fight for one side. So that, that is also relatively positive. It, it may mean that hopefully the, the current fighting will, will mean that in the long-term future, the peace in Darfur, even though the, the Juba agreement is, is only poorly implemented, the peace in Darfur will, will be a little bit more implemented, some key provisions in particular, having joint, joint forces to provide security. You, you can see how much it's actually relevant to, to the current situation. Even so now, the army and the RSF are not able to work together to provide that security. But locally, there's been some efforts, East Darfur in particular, which is a, a state mostly controlled by Arab communities. Those Arab traditional leaders have been able to, to tell both the army and the RSF not to fight because, and that the fight should not take place in that state. It should take place in Khartoum, and then, depending on the on the results in Khartoum, they shall see how to position themselves locally. Similarly, in North Darfur, it's quite these days, and I hope it will last. Some local chiefs, but also rebels, Darfur rebels, have been able to convey the message that they don't actually want the fight to continue in in that state, in North Darfur. And and since the rebels returned from Juba, they actually control very large parts of North Darfur, peacefully. So it's contrasted, and you may hope for some local truces signed with no international mediation, just by people themselves who know each other very well, to, to last and, and to allow, and to spare civilian lives and to get humanitarian access more possible, more easier than in other locations. Having said so, the, the the fight is really, since 15 April, and potentially already spreading in, in somehow all over Sudan at different degrees. When you, when you look at how things are fighting, it clearly looks like the army has not really had any success yet in pushing Hemeti and the RSF out of Khartoum. What sort of endgames are you looking at? And, and how do you think about this question about you know, how do you resolve the RSF problem in Sudan, this sort of paramilitary force which has continued to grow and grow? I mean, you know, you sometimes hear people say things like, we can just convince Hemeti to go to be a businessman based, you know, in the Gulf or something. But as you mentioned, you know, this sort of political security and commercial sides um, of his uh, conglomerate, if you will, are, are all interconnected. Um, so, so, so how do you see potential solution, which is obviously zooming far ahead and assuming that, you know, a ceasefire and beyond is, is even possible. But, but, but how do you sort of try to address that question? It's really difficult. You can at best, I think, make scenarios. I don't think there is an ideal solution to be proposed. And I don't think it's realistic to propose either of the two forces 
to relinquish too abruptly interests, whether political, economic, or military interests, which somehow are seen as, as necessary for their own survival. So this is what is really difficult to negotiate. I think somehow the, the Hamdok government's cautiousness was largely due to the fact that some in the Hamdok government understood quite well that even so there was a lot of optimism after the revolution, there were some red lines which were still very strong for any part of the military. And so I just see now it will depend a lot on the dynamics on the ground. If the you, you have a scenario you, you you have a scenario or two scenarios by which by, by which one of the two forces would actually win. But I think it's not that easy for any of them to 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 really win. And if one of them come to really dominate Sudan or at least the center, it it will not mean that the, the transition, the democratic transition will necessarily be easier. To be more optimistic, there is also a scenario, but it will take time, of uh, slow and gradual negotiations with some possible positive outcomes, because I think for both forces, the, the hegemony is not possible. And now the security sector reform will have to be discussed more seriously. I think the army also has, even if they have not lost, they have not been able to, to win that easily either for now. And that means they will have to maybe review their own composition because one of the key points in the security sector reform discussions was that critics from all over Sudan we are pointing to the fact that the leadership of the army was still uh, much dominated by by a few officers from mostly from from a very few communities from the center of Sudan. So now you see as well other officers raising. You see it now in the current fighting. You also saw it after the revolution. Some of them rose to relatively symbolic levels of power and others have potentially real power. And uh, one of the reasons actually the, the army seems to be managing to, to have uh, their, their soldiers still mobilized for that, for that fight, even though many of those soldiers actually come from the peripheries and are not necessarily, not necessarily feel represented by, by top officers from the center, one of the reasons they are, they are still mobilized is that actually a few officers from the peripheries are actually now having some power. So you feel that the army has to change as well, even though it may not be very quick. And that could allow proper integration from other forces, including the RSA, but also crucially as well, the Darfur others. But it will take a bit of time. And do you think, ultimately, Hameti would be willing to integrate his forces as he agreed to technically, although on a very long timeline? Well, I think he was also trying to earn some time, and that's kind of understandable. But um, now uh, the, the discussion about integration will have to start again from the scratch, because 
the trust has been broken, and now Hanetti has, has another argument to delay integration or, or to ask for more time, because he, his, his thinking is certainly okay. And what would have happened to me if I would have accepted accepted to integrate my forces in two years? Maybe I could have lost everything. So basically, Sudan has also a history of bad security arrangements with rebel movements. Rebel movements losing all power and being unable to integrate but a very few soldiers and even less officers. By the way, what's, it's interesting today that uh, still uh, a few uh, among rebel movements in Darfur who signed their earlier peace agreements, whose main, uh, somehow, peace agreements whose main provisions were actually those uh, integration promises. A few of them were integrated in the army and a few others later on in the RSF. Sometimes they are from originally from the same rebel movement and from the same tribe. And now you see both of them fighting and playing key roles on both sides for the RSF and for the SAF. So, well, I don't know what that means in terms of integration successes, but, but still it shows that uh, when people integrate, they, 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 they seem to remain loyal to their forces, uh, regardless of the fears that uh, the, the institutions are uh, still having on, on the new recruits uh, who uh, join institutions through peace agreements rather than through the classical process. Thanks so much uh, for coming on and for that conversation. Great to finally have you on the podcast. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell, and our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.